Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about postpartum depression and how we can recognize, diagnose, and manage. I'm Dr. Kate Merriweather, and you can find me on Twitter at KateMerriweather1. The case we're going to be discussing today is regarding a 28-year-old woman presenting with symptoms of depression in the postpartum period. For those of you following along in our book, this is case 7 on page 45 of the Beyond the Pearls Obstetric and Gynecology. This case was written by Dr. Jeffrey R. Temple. He's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. Let's go to our case. So Emily, a 28-year-old woman, presents for her scheduled six-week postpartum visit. Her physical examination is within normal limits. With the exception of sleep and appetite disturbances, she seems to be doing well. However, when you ask her how she's been managing things at home with her new baby, Emily becomes very teary-eyed and exclaimed, I just can't do it anymore. So why is it so important to ask about and discuss emotional health in postpartum women? The reason is that postpartum depression is very common. It affects about 15% of mothers and 30% of mothers in the adolescent population. In addition to negatively affecting women's quality of life, postpartum depression may impact the child's development. Child development in postpartum depressed women has been shown to be more difficult. Women that have infants that are depressed have less attachment, those infants are less responsive, they have more behavioral problems and cognitive deficits than children with non-depressed mothers. Thus, consistent with the stance of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, you should routinely screen all postpartum women for depression. An efficient and reliable screening tool to do this is the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, sometimes referred to as the EPDS in which women rate their current thoughts and feelings in the past seven days on 10 items that assess symptoms. And those those symptoms are consistent with depression. For example, I have felt sad or miserable. The EPDS is a preferred screening tool because it, first of all, can be scored rapidly and provides the physician with a cutoff score indicative of depression or even severe depression. Second of all, you can assess suicidal ideation in that scale. And third of all, it distinguishes expected post-pregnancy disturbances in quality of life 
from those that might be better attributed to depression. For example, I've been so unhappy that I've had difficulty sleeping as opposed to I've had difficulty sleeping, which is common with a new baby. So in the book, uh, there are examples of items from the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. So for example, I'm going to read one of them to you. In the past seven days, I've blamed myself unnecessarily when things went wrong. And they can respond, yes, most of the time, yes, some of the time, not very often, or no, never. So you assign a score to each of the 10 items. And then there is a cutoff score um, that allows you to determine whether or not they seem to have depression or even severe, more concerning depression. So we want to distinguish between baby blues, depression, or even psychosis. It's really important to distinguish this from baby blues because baby blues are very common. They occur in about 50 to 80% of postpartum women. Usually baby blues are transient, characterized by mild mood disturbances, and generally they abate quickly with some support and education. However, postpartum depression is characterized by more severe mood disturbances of a longer duration, so persisting more than two weeks after the birth, and can present within weeks of delivery. Other symptoms include loss of interest, loss of enjoyment in activities, frequent crying, fatigue, poor concentration, and feelings of worthlessness, especially as it relates to motherhood. So women will use phrases such as, I'm a terrible mother, or I can't do this. Obsessing over the health and well-being of the baby is common, and there might be even unwanted and intrusive thoughts of harming the baby. With respect to the latter, and unlike postpartum psychosis, there is little risk of depressed postpartum women harming the child. Indeed, women often hesitate to seek help and reveal these unsettling thoughts for fear that healthcare providers will remove the baby. While postpartum psychosis receives the abundance of media attention, it's extremely rare, only about one or two per a thousand births, fortunately. That postpartum psychosis is characterized by thoughts, delusions, and auditory and or visual hallucinations, so including potentially command hallucinations to harm the baby or to harm the self. Postpartum psychosis, of course, is considered an emergent situation and requires immediate intervention. So a clinical pearl for steps two to three, postpartum mood disorders can range from blues that affect 50% of women are very self-limiting and considered normal. Usually those occur around day three postpartum and resolve within one or two weeks. Postpartum depression has an incidence of 10 to 15% of postpartum women and symptoms present for longer than two weeks and can persist for months. Psychosis has an occurrence of approximately 0.1%. That onset is usually in the first two weeks after delivery, but includes psychotic thoughts, elations, delusions, unusual behavior, and may include thoughts of harming the baby or oneself. That's the emergency. So let's go back to our clinical case. Emily goes on to tell you that she cries every day, has difficulty sleeping, lacks energy, and has lost interest in things she previously found enjoyable, like exercising, reading, hanging out with friends. She very reluctantly tells you that she resents her new baby, feelings of which she's incredibly ashamed, and feels guilty for wanting to return to work and for not being able to attend to her other two children, who happen to be age two and six. She's not shared these feelings with anyone else, including her male partner, her husband. So what are some additional questions you need to answer from Emily at this point? While it appears that Emily's symptoms are more consistent with depression than baby blues, additional information is needed. So first of all, when did Emily first notice the symptoms? Two, what's the severity of her symptoms? Three, does she have a personal or family history of depression, substance use, or other mental health problems that would put her more at risk? Four, presence of delusions or hallucinations. You have to determine whether or not they're psychotic features. And fifth, and maybe most important, thoughts of death or suicide. 
Physical causes of depression also need to be considered, including hypothyroidism and anemia, which are very common in the postpartum period. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's go to another clinical pearl. For diagnostic purposes, a woman presenting with symptoms of depression that began within four weeks of delivery is considered diagnosed with major depression disorder with postpartum onset. So there's actually that label, major depressive disorder with peripartum onset. Five or more of the following criteria have to be present during that same two-week period that they have the symptoms. And that represents a change from the previous functioning. And at least one of the symptoms has to be either depressed, smooth, or loss of interest. So what are the seven symptoms of depression that we have to meet the criteria of five or more? One, depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by either report from the patient or observation made by others, like they appear cheerful to someone else. Two, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day or nearly every day. And again, that can be either from subjective account or observation of, of a third party. Three, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain, a change in more than 5% of body weight in a month, for example, or a decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. Four, insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day. Five, psychomotor adaptations or retardation nearly every day. Again, this is usually observable by others or the patient can report subjective feelings of restlessness or being slowed down. Six, fatigue or loss of energy. And seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt, which might even be delusional. And that has to happen nearly every day. And not merely self-reproach or guilt about being sick or being depressed. So just to review those seven symptoms, depressed mood, diminished interest, significant weight loss or weight gain, 5% in a month, for example, insomnia or hypersomnia, psychomotor agitation or retardation, fatigue or loss of energy, and feelings of worthlessness or guilt. So there's two other symptoms that we have to discuss in addition to those seven. There's diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. Eight is a tricky one because many postpartum women have difficulty concentrating, usually because of the lack of sleep and all the tasks that they're juggling. So this one isn't as specific to depression or baby blues. But nine is very important also because it involves suicidal ideation, recurrent thoughts of death, not just fear of dying, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or even a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. That's very emergent. So that ninth one, suicidal ideations, counts toward the potential five and it's very important to ask about. Symptoms can cause a clinically significantly distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of function 
You also have to know that symptoms aren't attributable to the physiological effects of, of a substance, like uh, abused drugs or, for example, a medication they're taking or some other medical condition. And you also have to make sure there's not a manic or hypomanic episode. And some uh, clinicians have even argued that these symptoms can be applied for up to six months after birth of the baby to still consider that you might have peripartum onset. So in assisting the understanding of patient needs, diagnosis, and treatment, clinicians should also be aware of risk factors and comorbidities associated with postpartum depression. So this is another clinical pearl. What are some risk factors for Emily? So age, it's higher with adolescents. So young mothers are more at risk for this. An unplanned pregnancy, stressful life events or circumstances, interpersonal problems, particularly with the partner with which they had the baby. Difficult pregnancy or infant with health problems. Prior history of depression, which makes so total sense. Prior history of mental health problems, and that can include post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD and substance abuse. A family history of depression or another mood disorder. Poor social support, chronic pain, and obesity or an inactive lifestyle. So let's go back to our case with Emily. So Emily meets the criteria for major depression when we go through those nine criteria. Moreover, you learn that Emily has little help at home. She recently moved with her family across the state and away from her parents and friends to accommodate her husband's job. Her husband, while well-intentioned, is a medical resident and spends little time at home. While she receives some relief during the weekdays when her six-year-old attends school, she's almost solely responsible for all three children, including her newborn, who has been especially fussy of late. She tells you she did not have these symptoms after the birth of her first two children, but also reported that those were planned and prepared for and that those pregnancies, quote, seemed easier. She found out that she was pregnant with her third child just as she was about to start graduate school. Emily's never taken psychiatric medication in the past. So what immediate interaction and treatment should you undertake for Emily? Perhaps most importantly, Emily's thoughts and feelings should be reflected and normalized. You should acknowledge her recent stressors, a newborn, moving, caring for three children, and no time for herself, putting off graduate school, and let her know that her symptoms, while needing to be addressed, are pretty common and somewhat expected. Normalize her feelings of guilt and resentment and let her know that these are likely her depression talking as opposed to her not being an adequate mother or an adequate partner. Educate the patient on postpartum depression. Let her know the prevalence, the course, the common symptoms and treatment. Reassure her that she does not have psychosis and that you're not worried about her developing that condition, nor are you worried about her harming the baby, provided that this has been assessed and denied. Next, help the patient shore up resources so she can spend more time alone or with friends, preferably doing something she enjoys with her husband in order to strengthen their partnership with her older children and resting or sleeping. That one's very critical. While life circumstances like money, new to the area, job, and the patient's guilt over leaving her child and obsessiveness with that child's welfare often make these changes very difficult, they're essential for improvement. In Emily's case, it might mean her husband reducing his hours at work or flying in a family member or friend to assist. So a basic science pearl for step one. Patients with depression might show characteristic changes in sleep patterns, and that can include reduced slow-wave sleep, reduced rapid eye movement, REM latency, increased REM early in the sleep cycle, increased total REM sleep, and early morning awakening. That actually is true of any uh, woman with depression, regardless of whether she has it in the peripartum period or not. So what referral and long-term treatment might be appropriate for Emily? Referral, of course, is going to depend on the severity of symptoms and patient safety. If the patient is managing her symptoms, albeit with difficulty, 
A referral to a psychologist or other licensed mental health professional is absolutely important. This is generally considered the treatment of choice, especially if the mother's breastfeeding. There's many psychiatric medications that are contraindicated or have been tested on uh, breastfeeding mothers. So cognitive behavioral therapy may be used to manage and challenge a patient's negative thoughts. For example, I'm a horrible mother and increase goal-oriented and pro-social behavior. A psychologist or therapist will also assist the patient in increasing resources and social support, like a Mother's Day Out group, or suggestions for how she can get her family uh, and friends to help her. If this approach does not reach the desired effect or if the patient's symptoms require more immediate attention, a referral should be made to a psychiatrist with expertise in managing peripartum women. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors have been shown to be effective in treating these symptoms uh, for postpartum women. Patients may need to discontinue breastfeeding and substitute with formula milk during their pharmacologic treatment. You and the patient might need to discuss whether the benefits of treating depression with psychiatric medication outweigh any benefits of breastfeeding. So a clinical pearl for steps two to three, lithium intake has been associated with Epstein's anomaly. There's more recent data suggesting that risk of cardiovascular malformation following prenatal exposure to lithium is less than previously anticipated. So only one per 2,000. It was formerly thought to be about one per 1,000. And that might possibly not even be a teratogen for Epstein's anomaly. Epstein's anomaly refers to that abnormal tricuspid valve with apical displacement of the attachment of that septal leaflet. That can result in tricuspid regurgitation, tricuspid stenosis, and right heart dilation because of the abnormal valve exiting it. Other associations with lithium may include atrial septal defect and pulmonary stenosis. So let's go on to a case summary, looking back at what we've talked to Emily about. So she's a 28-year-old woman who presents for her scheduled six-week postpartum visit. The patient meets criteria for major depression and has little help at home. You recognize it's important to acknowledge her recent stressors and normalize her feelings of guilt and resentment. Additionally, it's imperative to educate her regarding postpartum depression. You gather resources to assist the patient in spending more time doing something she enjoys, resting, spending time with her family. For patients with difficulty managing their symptoms, referral to a psychologist or other licensed mental health professional is indicated. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.